0: Well, it's not The monkeys, but nevertheless, for my money, a fascinating moment in the social and technological history of television. It's TV during World War II, coming up next on Inside the Box.
1: The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now! (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's inside the box the TV history podcast
0: hello out there in podcast land and welcome to another exciting episode of inside the box I'm Andrew Salvati and with me today in the studio are actually a full ship's compliment uh, Stephen Voorhees how are you doing
3: good Andrew how are you doing
0: great great Jonathan Bollinger how are you doing I'm
2: good. I'm excited for tonight's episode. Um, I love the topic of world war two, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. And, uh, Truth be told, I'm getting a bit of a psychic. I feel like we might tie in some of the work we've done before on this subject. Uh, yeah, this I episode. think so.
0: And, you know, I'm really hoping to elicit some of the good uh, knowledge juices that you have left over from your dissertation, which, as we've said before on this program, was about media representations of World War II. So maybe we can loop some of that back
2: in yeah, here. Yeah, I, I, I think we will, but uh, I'm excited. I love this topic, so, uh, so I want to hear about
0: Great. it. Great. So I've, as I've said, uh, today we're talking about uh, television and World War II, uh, and I'm hoping to get both of my uh, co-hosts really excited about this, but particularly Jonathan Bollinger, because Jonathan's dissertation, as we probably mentioned in this podcast once or twice or three times, uh, is about media representations of World War II, uh, and I'm hoping that our conversation today about Uh, Television as a technology and as a practice during World War II can kind of stir some deep thoughts from Jonathan connected to his, his dissertation. So... Those of you who have been following Inside the Box from the beginning, or if you have diligently listened to all of our episodes, and we very much thank you for that, you probably remember that in our very first episode, we discussed TV's public debut at the 1939 New York World's Fair, and we talked about how broadcast television wasn't a product of the post-World War II electronics and consumer boom, as is sometimes thought. TV predated the war, though for a variety of reasons that we describe in that first episode, manufacturers and retailers, despite their best efforts, were not able to sell that many sets. As we said, the period was called Sarnoff's Folly in reference to the way in which David Sarnoff, the head of RCA, had made these fantastic pronouncements of TV's success in 1939, 40, and 41, and they never really panned out. And soon after, of course, American involvement in World War II promptly halted the growth of the television industry altogether. As you can probably imagine, the country's production capacity and people power that may have been used in peacetime uh, to help develop the TV industry quickly pivoted to the war effort. Uh, So this is a moment of television history that doesn't really get covered all that much uh, in scholarship or in uh, typical histories of television that you might find. There are a couple people who refer to it here and there. There's a whole article devoted to it uh, that I'm going to cite a few times here. And generally, people will refer to the developments of television during World War II and maybe, um, you know, a couple paragraphs uh, here or there. Uh, But that's kind of what makes it really fascinating for me is it's kind of this moment of television history that doesn't really get that much coverage um, in what we usually read about television history. But before I get into all of that, I want to start by telling a story that actually starts at the end of the war. So, in June 1945, a little over a month after the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who we all remember was the supreme commander of the uh, victorious Western Allies, uh, he returned to the United States for a whirlwind homecoming tour, which took him to Washington, D.C., to New York City, to West Point, and to his hometown of Abilene, Kansas. In each of these cities, Eisenhower is greeted by cheering crowds of admirers, who had turned out to celebrate the man who was responsible for designing and leading the victory in Europe. The scenes that greeted Eisenhower uh, on this tour were something along the lines of a Roman triumph. I mean, this was a huge deal. In New York City alone, an estimated 4 million people lined the streets to catch a glimpse of Eisenhower's motorcade as it wound its way through Queens towards Manhattan. Uh, turning down Broadway, down what has been called the Canyon of Heroes, Ike and his procession were showered with swirls of confetti and ticker tape. Incidentally, there's some great images of this in Life magazine, of Ike waving and flashing the characteristic Eisenhower grin, the ticker tape, the whole bit. And you can see this for yourself online. Google has recently uh, digitized the entire run of Life magazine, and we'll throw a link up uh, to it on uh, the show page. As befitting the return of a conquering hero, Eisenhower's Homecoming was a media event covered by the press, by radio, newsreel crews, and at least two rudimentary television units. Remember, this was 1945, so television was very much in its infancy. Cameras from NBC, or more precisely NBC's New York City station WNBT, were on hand first in Washington, D.C. on June 18, 1945, to cover Ike's arrival from Europe and his speech before a joint session of Congress. From D.C., the WNBT crew actually put the footage on a plane to New York so that they could be aired locally in the New York City market in the evening. There was no coaxial cable connection between D.C. and New York in those days, or at least none that were able to handle a video feed. The following day, when Eisenhower arrived at LaGuardia Airport in New York, film and television cameras both from WNBT and local CBS station WCBW were both on the spot to follow the General's motorcade through Manhattan to a reception ceremony that had been planned at City Hall. Cameras from both networks captured the procession for live broadcast, while the, t- uh, the network's film cameras captured the events for evening telecasts.
1: America's greatest metropolis showered affection and confetti upon our returning hero. Millions of people lined the sidewalks, trained out of skyscrapers to wave to Ike. And every time, Ike waved right back. That completely infectious grin of Ike really got New York. Yes, and their wildly enthusiastic reception got Ike, too, you can bet on that. He said with very deep sincerity, By golly, New York just can't do this to an old farm boy and keep its reputation for sophistication.
0: Amid all the celebration and the excitement of Ike's official appearances during his trip to New York, the general did get some recreation time. He took in a Giants-Braves baseball game at the Polo Grounds. And, of course, the television units were on hand to cover the combined news and sports event.
1: But you know something? What Ike really wanted to do was just exactly what any other GI home from overseas wanted to do the very first thing, and that was see a baseball game. Yes, sir? A great thrill. He waited a long time for it. Say, isn't that uh, Mel Hott? I am Mel. I've been waiting for this.
0: Now, neither club uh, was apparently very good at the time. Perhaps Steve can speak to that. Uh, but as one New York Times reporter pointed out, the game and Eisenhower's attendance proved an impressive test of television's capabilities to cover a major news and sporting event all rolled into one. In terms of the coverage, video seeability, as the Times reporter called it, was evident, thanks to an improved type of close-up lens that worked especially well in low-lighting conditions, as the day had been kind of overcast. Uh, The reporter gave a detail to demonstrate. He said that the television men from the the TV crew sent a message to Eisenhower's box from their camera position 100 feet to the left and 40-odd feet high in the stand, so uh, quite a distance away. Uh, the message said, Would Eisenhower wave a greeting to the hospitalized veterans? And he did, vigorously demonstrating again the famed Eisenhower smile. Now, for television at the time, I mean, this was a huge distance and a vast uh, technological improvement over the kind of muddy images that pre war television and television cameras were capable of. So the idea of the reporter kind of marveling at this uh, ability of the TV camera to capture Eisenhower's grin, this small detail from quite a distance. Uh, really showed how much television technology and camera technology had improved in the in the in the interim. Now I like this story, and the reason I'm telling it is because for me, if you look into the details, uh, it really gives you a snapshot of American television as it emerged from the warriors and took its first few tentative steps to becoming a mass medium. To begin with, Films of Eisenhower's homecoming tour became a re-entry point for commercial television sponsorship. So, as we may have mentioned in one of our previous episodes, the Federal Communication Commission, which was and is the federal agency responsible for making U.S. broadcasting policy, uh, they had okayed commercial sponsorship for television in July 1941. And one of the very first advertisers to sponsor a regular telecast in those days was the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey, or ESSO as, as it was called, uh, which returned in 1945 after a four-year hiatus to sponsor WNBT's coverage of Eisenhower's homecoming tour.
1: For
0: service that is tops and gas that's extra fine, there's
1: a smile for every mile at the ESSO sign. E-S-S-O
0: makes your Go. Happy so in both cases, uh, you know, in the, in the early days and then again in 1945, Esso was an early adopter, uh, an early sponsor uh, of television. And it would actually be quite a few years before the boys on Madison Avenue became really comfortable with selling their clients on television. But in 1945, as the war actually still raged in the Pacific theater against the Japanese, Esso and a handful of other sponsors at the time were starting to get back into, put their feet back in the television pool, so to speak. Sponsoring the Eisenhower films, they felt, was a good bet, a good way to get their name in front of uh, potentially hundreds or maybe thousands of people who might be watching at home or in department store windows or at hospitals or in other public venues, as I'll explain a little bit later. But there was other stuff as well. The last detail about the close-up lens and Ike's smile from 100 feet away, well, this was possible because despite the fact that virtually all of the nation's electronics equipment manufacturers had been enlisted for the war effort, research into the component instruments of television cameras and receivers was continued by scientists and engineers at firms like RCA, Dumont, Uh, General Electric, and AT&T, all of which were trying to develop new applications for video on the battlefield, Uh, so TV as a wartime technology. Their research included the refinement and mass production of cathode ray tubes for radar systems and oscillographs, which are are kind of those circular monitors sometimes you see in like old sci-fi and horror movies where they they, they sense the electronic uh, wave that that kind of is highlighted in in kind of like this green wave form. Um, They also uh, improved on uh, the image orthicon, which was a lightweight camera tube intended uh, as a guidance instrument for airborne weaponry that significantly improved upon the existing iconoscope, and which became standard, Uh, this image orthicon became standard equipment in peacetime television through the 1960s. And then of course there were the new lenses, like the one that captured Eisenhower's winning smile at the baseball game, Uh, And also a whole new range of electron tubes, which David Sarnoff himself actually once called the magic weapon of modern war because of its its critical use in electronics equipment. Altogether, these innovations developed during the war improved upon the vast system of components and technologies that would contribute to post-war television, including the mass production of television sets themselves. Now, I want to stop here and and bring my colleagues and co-hosts back in um, for a little bit of discussion. So, you know, we've talked about in the past how TV was not necessarily a post-war technology, but I'm wondering what we might make of this story that I've been telling, um, that significant improvements in television technology and the mass production of television were part of what we might call the early military-industrial complex, that it was, you know, a part of a program of wartime development by these very large firms that had these deep ties to the government. What what might we make of all this?
2: The military was really the only game in town, so to speak, Um, because you have to remember the war was coming out of or really helped us get out of a depression. So from roughly, you know, what, 41 to 45 especially, you know, the United States government and the military and its ability to win a world war was a pinnacle. So... I'm not surprised that it went that direction um, because the resources were there, the focus was there, and then and then post-war we switched from a hot war to a cold war once we knew uh, Soviet Union uh, had access to nuclear, uh, or sorry, atomic weapons. So, you know, sure, it makes me uneasy, but you and I both know um, origins of of internet was a hybrid of university and military funding and talent. So, I think if you had said it came from something else other than say a corporation, a university, or the military, that would you know blow knock my socks off, but the military stuff not for the time period not not too weird and actually i say the the your story, which I love with Eisenhower and the parade and and the zoom and all that uh the wave rather is I'm actually surprised how it's very similar to what we do these days, you know oh, yeah. like when yeah. you really think about it it's like big parade, big spectacle. Uh what's the president do when he's uh, on a on a site uh, on a on a visit? Let's see a game, let's wave to the troops at home, you know, that sort of stuff. So, I think that's what's funnier to me and and I get my my dates wrong, but so we're talking um I apologize that date was were that in the 40s or the 50s. That was
0: uh, when Eisenhower, yeah, Eisen- that was June, uh, 1945. Oh, that was, so that was
2: not president Eisenhower. That was right. That was right, general okay. Eisenhower. Um, so even late, even longer than, than the thing. No. I was, th- I was saying that because when we're doing math, you know, if it's, if it's 55, then we know 95 is 40 years, 2005, you know, you can do the easy math, but as we get older and older, it's sort of like 45. How long, you know, how long ago yeah, was that? Yeah. Whatever the decade, 70 years. Um, it's the same stuff. I mean, this is you're talking about the infancy sure. infancy of television. And it's not too different. And I mean, Steve can talk about this because he produces a lot of TV here and there. Um, if I said I have an elected official coming and there's a parade scheduled, and he's gonna stop a few places, you're probably gonna have your guys across sure. on the other building, and you're gonna nowadays it's all radio or wireless or whatever, you'd be like, okay, uh, Make sure someone knows to tell the president or whoever, tell his guys, we're going to need a shot of him waving and smiling because we're going to so, zoom
3: right in. Right. And it so much of that is similar. now, it's, it's like a pseudo press conference, right? Everything's going to be set up well in advance to make sure those cameras are there to capture right. all of that and even reenact things if necessary, just so that you can have the footage of it. Right. Because it's a PR machine. I mean, to Andrew's point about the military industrial complex, it's about imperialism. And so what I think television was fighting in the 50s with McCarthyism, a subject we've talked about... Here they're using it and seeing the power for their own imperialistic goals of showing, you know, the smiling right. general right. that, you know, this is your leader and these are the public spectacles. And because there's only a hand, not even a handful of channels, there's very few channels, it is a uniting medium that's bringing everyone together in one central place and you're seeing the same ideology you know uh, spread to everyone
0: yeah I mean I should say there were uh, I believe six operating uh, television stations in the country uh, in 1945 if I'm, sure if but I'm, but they're all if I'm not cor- in- incorrect um, two of them were in New York City right. um, and there was very little connection between the two except uh, in- between them uh, like in terms of like a network um, which is where the kind of mailing of, of film comes in, but right. you know that they were so hungry for content, and here is a here is a news event that comes to them, right? Eisenhower is coming to New York, so you know clearly you have you have content right there. All you have to really do is send some cameras right. down, as we've been well, saying. A- any
3: political I, official, I think, is is big there, and that plays into the military. Yeah. Um, you know, analogy that you're bringing mm. forth. Because if you think about the fireside chats, this is not that many years after Roosevelt's right. fireside no. chats, when you're listening to a president, but you don't see a president. So I think any political figure, now the country has a chance to see whom they may have voted for, or see what this person is really like, moving images. You know, I, I, would, I would argue that before 1945, had anyone seen video of Eisenhower? The answer is well, probably-, probably newsreels
0: probably yeah, newsreels
2: newsreels news but I, i'll say this i think i'm being too naive on this topic because in the 50s i tend to think of it if we're using the analogy as like a, a corporate industrial television complex right. like GE and whatever but GE has ties to you know uh, uh, i'm sure military or industrial mm. products and what steve all the points steve's making so i'm probably being naive about this but because the war interrupted the technology and then it felt like it became such a fluffy sort of, I don't know, appliance or whatever, lack of a better term. I don't know. I, I, I think you're making a good point, but I don't know if I see the heavy-handed militarism of right. it. As much as I think what Steve's saying, which is more about government and leaders. But again, I'm being naive because that's all about let's get into another war, Korea or whatever. You,
3: you're you know? also coming out of the war and you're looking for that prosperity of the marketplace. I mean, how much of this manufacturing is playing into bringing the economy back or at least sustaining the economy into this right. post-war You know, um, well, no, and that's well, yeah, a good point. And, so they were anxious that, there were, that
0: we would go come out of the war and go right into another yeah. depression. So,
2: so that's, I guess, uh, Steve reminded me. So I would go right back to Andrew, and I'm cheating here because I know what he works on. Was there a lot of like military focused programming in the late 40s, early 50s? I mean, is is there more stuff on TV than I'm remembering? Like, is it all chock full of military stuff or demonstrations? No, I wouldn't or?
0: say, I wouldn't necessarily say chock full. Um, that's I'll a get technical to, term, yeah, it chock is. Full, it so. is. Um, <laughs> shades of nuance there. Oh, the, yeah, my, very uh, much. So. Um, uh, but no, I, I'll actually get to a little bit of okay. the. Actually, wartime programming. There wasn't much of it, but there were some kind of rudimentary uh, war news reports um, and that sort of thing, newsreels, that sort of thing. So
2: I might be – this might be a blind spot in my own knowledge, so I could be dead wrong about this. But my guess is there was probably more investment in rudimentary calculating and computing machinery for military purposes if Mm. we're talking about technologies either interrupted by the war or born out of the war – Than necessarily um, television beyond maybe their understanding of it as a continuation of propaganda, i.e. what film reels could do for us and posters Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So, again, I might be just totally ignorant of this and you know more about this than I do uh, based on some of the things you mentioned. But it feels like that stuff is maybe more the 60s or something, like when we start doing Yeah,
0: and you television. know, actually, I, I don't really know. Like, I've done plenty of preparation for this episode, read what I could get yeah, my yeah. hands on. Um, but I, I kind of feel like there's a lot more work on television during World War II that could be mm-hmm. done. I mean... If yeah. I had the time years from now, I, I could just see myself actually writing like a book-length study because out of all the things I've read, like I don't I don't recall anybody ever going to like the NBC papers about Wisconsin and like going through them and see what RCA oh, was doing yeah. during the war. So I am not really. I think you're I think you're absolutely
2: on the right path. I'm just saying my gut says. Remember the episode we did on, the, I think it was the Magnavox Odyssey, Yeah, and we showed the game show where they had to guess what the people were doing with right, a video game, right. and they'd never seen a video game before? Because they just couldn't conceptualize mm. that that's what you're doing. I just don't think, and again, I'm guessing here, I just don't think in 45, 46, enough people understood the potentiality of television to think of it in, like, what we did end up doing militarily mm-hmm. beyond, say, maybe just propaganda, like, oh, we can get a message out here, like, here what we go.
3: What about licensing, though, right? So the FCC, with these handful of stations across the country, they have a service Right to mm-hmm. to the licensing of the FCC government entity, where does that play in with in terms of the content that they're selecting? You no, know, that and-
0: was one of the interesting things that I came across um, because the FCC kind of recognized the personnel and material strain that these you know very small budding TV stations were under because of the war. The FCC actually lowered the requirements for broadcast time, how many hours you had to broadcast during the day to maintain your license. And before the war, and I think maybe the first year or so, that that number was, I think, around 15 hours or so. But because the FCC uh, wanted to encourage... Stations to keep broadcasting during the war and kind of recognize the limitations, they actually dropped it down to four. Wow. Four hours per day. Um, And some places were able, uh, some stations were able to meet that. Others weren't. I think a few stations actually went dark during the war. I think at the beginning of the war, 1941, there may have been like nine stations operating. What year is the license freeze? Um, the license freeze so FCC
3: was not handing out any more licenses oh you mean
0: the actual the television freeze yes oh that was
3: 48 Oh, so that's way pushed forward, okay.
0: Um, but with the uh, FCC, actually, the I, I think it was called the War Production Board, um, actually made a series of statements limiting, like, the, the first limitation or restriction in 1941 was like, okay, well, you can repair your station, but you can't expand it. Mm. And then I think in early 1942, if I'm not mistaken, they said, okay, well, all uh, y- you can't build any more, period. Um, so there were those kind of limitations but for the guys who were already on the air, uh, the FCC did at least try to uh, bring the, the floor down, so to speak, to four hours, which uh, at least six of the operating TV stations were able to do mostly through replaying old uh, you know, newsreels, covering some sporting events if they had the resources to do that and a few other things which I'm actually going to get to uh, a little bit later. But yeah, I just wanted to get back to this. I, I, I guess with my question, I was trying to tease out, and Jonathan, I think you hit on it. Maybe I was fishing a little too much. Is the connection that we talked about in the Magnavox Odyssey episode between video games and the you know corporate and university industrial complex, right. uh, and video games and the internet? Um, you know, as you brought up, but I'm 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 kind of wondering if. There's an analogy there with television, but as we've kind of been saying that you know TV kind of existed beforehand, so I don't really know if the same thing is is there. I
2: just I think I think what you need to find is there's either an inventor or a uh, broadcast uh, CEO or or executive who had the vision and the nationalism or patriotism to go. Here's what we could do with this thing to help Mm -hmm. win the war so that we don't have to deal with another Japan or another Hitler or maybe at that if it's late enough in the 40s, you know, whatever Stalin is now brewing as a a new enemy. I think if you find that in a primary archive, then I think you're in business now, whether that anyone listened to that person or or followed up on the ideas or or maybe it's even some weird classified uh, sort of experimental television stuff. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I think there's something there. Mm. Um, and and so I, I think it's something to yeah. revisit. I just, I I don't have that knowledge of, and part of it's from the master narrative that we're all sort of learned, which is uh, like you said, it was developed, war interrupted that, radio was still king. Then we started producing enough sets. People started getting enough reception. And then it was, President Eisenhower, you know, he's he's mm-hmm. now uh, appearing here and there. And then uh, it is the s- situation, a- a comedy. It's I Love Lucy. Yep. It's the anthology drama series. It's as we had literally on this. If you haven't listened, folks, we had um, uh, uh, former FCC uh, uh, chairman, uh, uh, you know, Vast Wasteland speech, famously. Newton Minow, yep. Newton Minow uh who then railed against how corporate it had become the game show scandals the fluffiness the the lightness which again doesn't mean it's not connected to the military goals but you would think you would say like there's too much there's too much propaganda on this mm. thing but he didn't quite yeah, really say yeah. that so i think that's the narrative that we've certainly have been fed and we believe in but i think you have a better question which is was there a little window there before that or maybe underneath all mm. that where we were hoping to destroy the, <laughs> destroy yeah, the Russians yeah. with television technology in a way beyond propaganda. Well, I
3: mean, the one thing that television is after 1941 is commercialized, right? And yeah. so maybe that programming that Jonathan mentioned, maybe that's not part uh, or, or the chunk of the answer that Andrew's looking for, but rather what you just said, laying underneath all of that, you have commercials. So how many PSAs, public service announcements, which are authored by duck, the government? Duck and right, cover. Right, are out and... And you know, really yeah. pushing this more so than even the programming might be, right? So mm-hmm. the the commercial sponsors, um, PSAs. I would say I would really look at those and see what yeah. what was the message that was being re- repeated.
2: Now, now the the real answer, and Steve and I are both going to cover our microphones. You're not going to say and, Riptide, and, are you? And, no, no. And okay. say
3: and say this to our,
2: to ourselves without Andrew hearing. And that is, uh, uh, of course, it's the alien technology from Roswell. Ah. Um, They actually gave us the technology to defeat the Russians through higher level uh, television. Um, And Andrew just weren't allowed to uh, know that. So, um, but keep you keep looking in the uh, the GE archives. That's where the answer is. Don't look at Area Fifty One or anything. Andrew, I have no no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) So, no, but (laughs) that's what you're supposed to tell me, though, right? Right. But the point, though, my point is, is I'm reason I'm silly in a silly way going to the conspiracy thing is I think Steve is revealing a, a real thing, which is, I think sometimes we have to get beyond underneath those narratives and think in a way that is different from
0: what we were mm-hmm. sort of spoon fed. Just recalling now in our conversation from my reading that. Um, firms like RCA and Zenith in particular, because they were electronics manufacturers in addition to their TV business, they got a lot of government contracts just to do the electronics side. Mm. Um, so they coming out of the war were really flush with cash that they can then reinvest back into TV. So maybe, you know, it's something as simple as kind of like this kind of informal or backdoor uh, sort of subsidy of the TV industry as it, you know, emerged in 1945. So, yeah, Jonathan, I'll continue with uh, another part of the Eisenhower's uh, homecoming tour story that's interesting, which is the way in which we can read it as a coda or a final act in television's rudimentary war coverage. Jonathan, something that you were uh, pointing out earlier uh, or you were interested in uh, hearing about. Even though resources and personnel were extremely restricted during the war years, TV broadcasting operations weren't completely mothballed. Indeed, six television stations, mostly on the East Coast, were able to operate through 1945, though on a very limited basis, as we've been talking about. Telecasters, and especially David Sarnoff, were eager to join the war effort in any way they could, eventually turning large parts of their broadcast hours over to showing newsreels, special films, and most significantly, uh, training programs for civil defense volunteers. And a really good source for some of this story is a 1995 article by James Von Schilling, uh, who's a broadcast historian, which is called, in fact, Television During World War II. Von Schilling is one of the only scholars that I'm aware of who has actually really taken a detailed look at this this period of television history during the war, uh, which is so fascinating to me. Uh, So in the course of this article, uh, Von Schilling explains that in early 1942, NBC's New York station WNBT initiated a Regular schedule of preparedness lectures, demonstrations, and training films for air wardens that were shared with and retransmitted by the General Electric Company from their TV station in Schenectady and by the Philco Company from their Philadelphia station. So, although there weren't necessarily the coaxial cables to form a network, and although these stations might not have necessarily been affiliated with each other, there was kind of an informal network that was growing here based on the sharing of. Essentially taped films, not tape, but they were, you know, 16 millimeter film or whatever they were. Through examining contemporary accounts, Von Schilling uh, in this article that I'm citing reports that the televised Air Warden Seminars and Preparedness Lectures, which featured instruction by uh, NYPD officers and other official presenters, uh, brought television a lot of positive publicity and gave the TV industry a clear wartime role. And in fact, the programs themselves, repeated several times, were likely seen by thousands of Americans on television sets that were rolled into local police stations, firehouses, schools. Auditoriums, homes, department stores, and another of other uh, assorted public venues. Um, incidentally, my mother's father, so my maternal grandfather, was uh, an air warden during the Second World War. So, reading this in von Schilling's account, I'm kind of wondering if he indeed uh, go someplace for one of these training sessions um, to, you know, prepare and to listen to one of these lectures. Just, just fascinating stuff. Um, I might, I might never know, but maybe he did. So though uh, WNBT eventually shuttered its production studios in late 1942 and reduced its telecasts to films, newsreels, and occasional sporting events, the Air Warden instructional programs afforded a further glimpse into television's post-war potential as an instrument for mass education. So kind of getting into this idea of uh, content and maybe even propaganda that we've been talking about. Is there anything else that you know? Maybe we can say about TV and centralized information dissemination in the service of official government goals that I, I guess we haven't touched on well, already. Any I, any other
3: thoughts? The one word that comes to mind is immediacy. I know yeah. radio is in, is in existence at this time and very popular, and it's immediate. What do you think it was about the television picture that that gave maybe TV more of a priority with the government? Seeing because you figure these government officials military you know they they're they're all about the radio but they see television what was it that gave them and it gave the picture uh, the visual of the television maybe a leg up well i
0: mean i guess you could you could always use visual instruction aids i mean i know in von schilling's paper he talks about some of these training films were actually you know acted out by actors so that the viewers could actually see you know what you would do uh, you know in an, in an air alert and that sort of thing so I think that that has you know the the visual dynamic over radio, which you know I, I'm actually not sure, but I'm sure radio you know had some hand in preparedness. Sure. Well, but think uh, about radio
3: time. is a vast network. You talk about right. coaxial not existing. Radio has the network and the reach, so I'm sure that's it's still a predominant care uh, for the military. But here you have television, six stations. I guess they're seeing the yeah. growth of what you're saying. Right? And
0: you know what, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe further research turns up that you know since these were filmed programs maybe they did screen them in movie theaters i'm not really sure Mm. Uh, but that i mean that's a potential as well well, it's going into the home, right? It, I mean, it had is episodes going into the where home. We've
3: talked about in the home being so much more personal and right, um, intimate than you would in a public right. theater.
0: And I just imagine these people showing up at you know the local fire station for these training sessions on the brand new technology of television. And then the screen's so small, you have all these yeah. people like huddling around these very small monitors, and it's just it's amazing to me.
2: Yeah, I would I would say, and 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 just to be clear, we're situating this during World War II, not post. This is during World War II. So yes. during World War II, I still think it's applicable, which is, you'd have a lot of fervor and nationalistic feeling, especially amongst younger people. So I think that would be a very strong target audience for them to have this uh, system work work on. Um, I say that because I think older folks, some of them were still uh, either their own experiences or their parents' experiences during the propaganda of World War I and being sort of gun-shy against all that sort of over propaganda. So some of them, although obviously some of them were caught up in the nationalistic fever of World War II, of course they were, but some maybe not so much. And then I was going to make the – it's a bit moot, but the post-war 50s argument version of that, of course, is just young impressionable baby boomers who – not knowing anything different, like magic glowing box in my mm-hmm. living room, uh, m- safe, warm home, mom and dad, uh, whatever you pump through that thing, I'm going to love it. You yeah. know? So yeah. if you want to sneak in some propaganda stuff or some military stuff or whatever, uh, you know, cause we, we know they ate up, uh, the Cowboys, uh, The Lone Ranger, uh, Superheroes, Ventures of Superman, yeah. all that stuff. Um, and, and then uh, so, so the potentiality is, is there for sure. So the
0: final bit I want to tease out of this story again goes back to the famous Eisenhower smile at the Giants Braves game, which the TV crew wanted for the benefit of hospitalized veterans. In October 1943, RCA had donated TV receivers to four New York area veterans' hospitals so that the soldiers recuperating those facilities could preview the technology that promised to be one of the premier consumer goods of the post-war era. Of course, this was a brilliant marketing strategy for the company. They could get their product, the TV, and NBC programming in front of wounded veterans with little to do and who would be their principal customers when mass production eventually picked up after the war. As I've mentioned, though, WNBT programming was still limited during the war years, but NBC and RCA used these quote-unquote captive audiences to test out programming, which included news and politics, war coverage certainly, but also footage from the 1944 Democratic and Republican National Party conventions. Uh, There were also music performances by the NBC Symphony and the opera singer Toscanini. But perhaps unsurprisingly, NBC's researchers found that sporting events, and particularly boxing. Uh, and baseball, uh, boxing actually because it was so close and made use of TV's intimacy, as we've been talking about, Steve. Um, Boxing and baseball were the most popular programs among the veterans. Indeed, since Memorial Day 1945, WNBT had been broadcasting at least one baseball game a week for the benefit of the recuperating veterans.
3: I was just going to say veterans. um, If if My understanding is that in military, boxing is an activity that Mm. many participants will take up when, while yeah. they're in the military. So it's not surprising that boxing was yeah. one okay. of the most popular yeah. just to throw that out there.
2: And I was just going to connect. This is of course, obviously post-war, but, and, and I'm not going to, uh, shill for another podcast episode, but I'm going to shill for something else that Andrew Uh-oh. and I have been in a part Uh-oh. of, but, um, Uh, There's a wonderful book that uh, Andrew's advisor put out earlier this year called The Republic of Spin by David Greenberg. Mm -hmm. And Andrew and I both uh, provided research support on this. But what I'm thinking about is, for those that don't know, is so Andrew's been talking about uh, the camera finding war hero Eisenhower uh, right right after the war. But Eisenhower, when he became president in uh, 5052, he had and this is where it ties into Steve. I don't know if Steve knows this. But one of your favorite television actresses, Elizabeth Montgomery, her father, mm-hmm. Robert Montgomery, was basically one of the first media consultants uh, in Washington. And he was Eisenhower's personal media guy. He basically taught him how to appear on camera. Hmm. There's lots of different yep. examples. But the, the one that I always remember is he was one of the guys who basically said to Eisenhower... And nowadays they're popular. We're all wearing them, but the sort of thick, chunky, horned rim, Buddy mm-hmm, Holly glasses. He mm-hmm. said, "Get rid of them. You want a nice light glass uh, that's going to sit on your face and not uh, make your face so dark and boxy on yeah. screen. Sit here, stand here. Don't stand like this." Mm-hmm. But right. And that helped. It helped a tremendous deal. So um, Eisenhower, uh, you know, that's not the end of his story with uh, the camera and his relationship to it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, she wasn't the only one in the family who uh, uh, <laughs> knew how to use the media. Well, uh, sure, because who was she married to? Oh, oh uh, uh, we just talked about this in here's now we're 39 uh. left. The Paul Lind episode we talked about robert Mon- uh, i'm sorry elizabeth montgomery and her husband producer and friend of the of paul lind william uh, asher i was going to go with randolph Hearst. but okay <laughs> asher it is i forgot that name but yeah that's 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 true you're exactly right so it all comes in all but comes but i mean yeah around. totally
0: uh, to your point i mean eisenhower and television could itself be another episode of inside the box because uh, yeah. i believe he was the first president or presidential candidate to actually film a TV spot. Adelaide Stevenson at the time yes. thought it was a, famously thought it was a gimmick. Uh, th- and yeah. The, the uh, uh, Minow uh, told us Stevenson. that story, yeah, yeah.
2: right? That, um... I'm, sh- I'm sure he's already booked for media appearances. And Eisenhower? Sorry, so, yeah, he is. No, and sorry, folks, this is more inside baseball. But I wonder if Dr. Greenberg would love to come talk about presidential spin in TV mm-hmm. And then do a little pro- prognosticating about uh, uh, recent uh, uh, recent events, recent yeah. events about how he'll use the media uh-huh. based on his previous track record, uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So it'd be more recent history.
0: Yeah, but, and I think um, it would be more multimedia. But hey, yeah. we're, we're we're game here. We're, we're but, uh, not only inside. We're, we're progressive. The box,
3: we're outside. And no, in we, are. we are. We are.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode of Inside the Box on television during World War II. I want to thank my co-hosts, Steve Voorhees and Jonathan Bollinger, for coming out and participating. I really wasn't sure how either one of you would respond to this uh, topic, uh, this piece of television history, which is fascinating to me. Uh, So I'm glad we had this really great discussion uh, about it. And uh, there's there's little pathways for the future here for, I think, me and and maybe for all of us, too, I hope. Um, So uh, thanks very much. Uh, thanks listeners for tuning in for myself Andrew Salvati for uh, Steve Voorhees and for Jonathan Bullinger this has been Inside the Box thanks and see you next time